Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Start here, start now by Liz Kleinrock. It's a practical guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in schools. It implements social justice work while building traditional literacy skills at the same time. There is no one and done lesson or book when it comes to social justice and culturally reflective teaching. This book is meant to help educators break habits that are holding them back from this work, as well as build positive, sustainable teaching for the future. Learn more and purchase. Start here, start now at Heinemann.com. Today's guest is Kwame Sofo Metza, a 15-year veteran urban educator and the founder and CEO of Identity Talk Consulting, LLC, an independent educational consulting firm that provides professional development and consulting services to K-12 school districts, educators, colleges and universities, and educational nonprofit organizations. He is also the author of two books, Shaping the Teacher Identity, Eight Lessons That Will Help You Define the Teacher in You, and From Inaction to Action, Creating a New Normal for Urban Educators. A proud graduate of Temple University, Kwame holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics and a master's degree in elementary education. I'd love to hear you talk about how aspiring ABAR educators can consider strategies to grow in their own practice, right? Because I'm listening to you talking about you came up on this, and this sounds like the experience of many of us, moments of enlightenment, where we're like, oh, snap, wait, wait, wait. We're not teaching about this, this, and that. Oh, no, no, I got to bring this into the classroom because the kids need that knowledge. And just to get some context, I'm a hip-hop head. And I mean, you could appreciate this, man. I'm going to tell you who I listen to. And you can understand why my mindset was the way it was. Like, I grew up listening to Karis One, man. I, I grew up listening to Boogie Down Productions. I grew up listening to Tribe Call Quest, Nib Movement. I grew up listening to Dead Press. Dead Press? Like, I was, Bro, I like, was bumping that front. Yo, that, that whole press got me through album. my freshman year in college at, at, at a PWI. That whole Let's Get Free album, that was part of my soundtrack when I was in high school. Along with Yasin Bay, Black on Both Sides. Like, this was, was this is my say, Mathematics? So I'm not a math teacher, I was on, but if I was, I'd have, to, I'd have to do a lesson on that song. I mean, but this is, this is how, this is me, though. So I already came in with that knowledge of self. All I had to do was listen to day schools, and I was ready to go. It blew my mind. Like, yo, this is exactly what's going on in my history class, and this is what I saw even going through college and even into my early years of education. And I realized I have to do things differently. So the know-how was there. It was a question of how to navigate a system that was meant to marginalize and 
oppress my own people? How do I, like, how do I maneuver it? That was always the challenge. And it's right. hard to up when you're within that system because you're trying to do it in a way that's, that's, you know, you're trying to finesse it. You're trying to go through, you know, these loopholes and try to find what they are. And it's not always easy to do. It's taxing. That's how a lot of us get burned out. And then we ultimately end up leaving that space to do either something else or to operate from outside in a different fashion that's still within the realm of education. But for those individuals who might not necessarily have that understanding that you had, because that gave you an advantage, what are, what, what are two or three strategies that you will offer them? Those aspiring A-bar educators want to make, they're teaching math and they want to make a difference, but they, they need two or three strategies to get them going. All right. I'll give them one right here. And this is a, it's a really easy one, too. Since we're talking about ABAR, anti-bias, anti-racist teaching, right? We have to focus on intersectionality. If you're not familiar with intersectionality, you need to read up on uh, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who talks about that, especially if we're talking about critical race theory studies, right? One, number one, I would say look for mathematicians who look like your student, okay? If we're all about the counter-narrative, you can find these individuals in books. You can find them in movies. You can even go as far as putting out, a, like what I did. I went on Twitter and I put out a tweet saying, hey, y'all, I'm doing a Black and STEM speaker series for my high school geometry students. I just finished it today. If you're a Black professional in the STEM field, let me know if you're interested in speaking with my kids. Next thing you know, 130 plus retweets. I have a whole list, whole thread of recommendations of people I can reach out to. Mathematicians, scientists. Got the resources. On different strands of math. And now keep in mind, a lot of these people I had never met before in my life, my teaching's all virtual. So it was really just a matter of saying, hey, we have class on this time. Can you give us 45 minutes of your time just to talk, to you, talk to the kids about what you do as a STEM career and how it impacts the black and brown community? And I was able to do almost a two-month speaker series where every week I had a new speaker. And there were certain weeks where I doubled up because there were so many who were interested in speaking with the kids. I love so that. number one is using social media and even your local communities to find those mathematicians who are doing the work. And I think to take it a step further, as you already know, I have a podcast called Radical Math Talk where I interview different people who are in math education, who do it from who, who do it from different vantage points, but are doing it for the purpose of liberation. So I've interviewed data scientists, I've interviewed aerospace engineers, I've interviewed people in academia who focus on math. I've interviewed entrepreneurs who have tutoring businesses, and these are all people of color, most of whom are black women. We know that black women get marginalized more than anybody. So if you look at my podcast, including Radical Math Talk, most of these mathematicians are black women. They're out here. They've been out here. But we just have to get our students to see that they're out there. And that doesn't cost any money. And I mean, as a as a former administrator, you can you can um, appreciate this. So often when we ask our principals, hey, can we go on this field trip to this museum? Can we go on this field trip to, to this place? The first question that they ask is, well, how are we going to pay for it? 
Facts. We gonna do a bake sale. We gonna raise money. How we gonna raise? How we gonna get money for this? Because that's gonna be a reason for them to say no. If you don't, if you can't provide the funds for this field trip, we can't go. Reaching out to people within the community, reaching out to your virtual um, networks is just one way to go about doing it, and it's free for the most part. It's free. I mean, for a few of them, I, I gave some honorariums because I just appreciate them for taking the time. But for the most part, people just did out of the goods of their heart. Free of charge and great exposure for the students. Huh. And you could easily do that. Doesn't matter what grade level. I don't care if it's kindergarten. I don't care if it's second grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, whatever, right? That's one thing. Um, the second thing is this. When we think about math, let's not... Yes, there's a math is a language, but if students are able to explain the math in their own in their own lingo, let it roll. Like let them explain it that way, right? If we're talking about culturally sustaining practices, we got to focus on language too. Yes, there's a formalized way of of talking about math, but that doesn't mean that we can't use their um, linguistic identity as an asset to them getting more um, fluent in their math language, if that makes sense. I'll give an example. Sixth grade, a few years back, I was teaching my sixth graders about characteristics of a quadrilateral. So when we were focusing on uh, rhombus, right, we are comparing a rhombus and a... Uh, I think a rectangle or maybe a square. No, it was a square. So we know that a rhombus, when we look at a rhombus, a rhombus has all congruent sides. When we say congruent, that means that the sides are equal. They're all the same length. But a square also has four congruent sides, but all of their angles are right angles, right angles being 90 degrees. So to help them remember what a rhombus looks like, I put on a, I put on Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal video. Because we look, we think about Smooth Criminal, you know, you know the, the classic part where he starts to lean forward, right? You see me leaning? He tries to see you. Don't fall now. He's starting to lean, then he goes, comes back up. That clip right there, I showed it to the kids, and I said, when you look at the rhombus, it's basically Michael Jacks. It's basically, basically the rhombus is a square doing a smooth criminal. That's that's dope. That's a dope analogy right there. Because the the rhombus is kind of like a slanted, slightly slanted square. Because all the, well, I'm not gonna say square because square has um what you call it, um four right angles. But it's a slanted quadrilateral that has four congruent sides like a square. So you can, if you slant it, it's like it's leaning forward. And I had one student put that on her quiz when she was answering an open-ended question. And you know what? I, I gave her credit for that. Wait, but how she answered? She so the question was, what's the difference between a rhombus? and a square and she pretty much explained it using the smooth criminal analogy that i provided 
She said, the rhombus is like Michael Jackson is smooth criminal. It's leaning. Yes. <laughs> That's dope, man. Yo, you see, if I was a math teacher, I would be doing songs, and I would use that analogy in a math rap song. Well, that's what vocabulary does, bro. You know vocabulary. So vocabulary um, pretty much does that. Not just for math, but for other subjects as well, where basically they pretty much break down these different skills and concepts into like 16 bars. And these dudes can spit too. Like they, they really spit. I don't know if you've heard some of the vocabulary videos. Like these are some like nah, nah, I got MCs. <laughs> I look them up. Maybe I haven't. I just don't remember. They have their own website, which I think you have to pay for a subscription. But if you just go on YouTube, sometimes you'll come across some of the vocabulary videos there that some people just upload because vocabulary has their YouTube channel. I'll check them out, man. But yeah. I ain't never heard the rhombus explained this way. Well, that's just because I had. I had kids who are Michael Jackson fans, so I figured, let me incorporate Michael Jackson culture into that lesson. And that's how they're able to retain what a rhombus is, conceptually. Now, obviously, I had to, I had to remove that, that scaffold and teach them the formalized way to explain it, right? Right. So I didn't just say, nah, you can't, you can't explain it that way. I gave credit for that because that's how she was able to access the content. I gave her an entry point. Now that she got through the door, now I need to help her formalize her language so that she can explain it in a way that is mathematically sound. If she were to write that on a standardized test, she probably would have got a zero. Right. Which is, which is a damn shame. But you and I know it would have been a zero. Because they're they're expecting you to to use math terms. I think she should get more credit if she brings in the smooth criminal analogy. But here's the thing, though: if it was a case where the standardized tests were ran by us, maybe she gets some more credit. But we are, but we not go open up that can of worms. That's not what we're doing assessment wise, anyways. That's what I'm saying. Um, that's that's just. We we, yeah. got some, we got some better assessments we could come up with, you know? I could see how we could come up with it, with the math assessment that not only challenges them to display their mastery, but also allows us to make it fun. Right. And I'm going to give you one more strategy. I already gave you two. We talked about, so we're talking about counter-narratives, right? We've talked about inviting guest speakers to come speak to kids, people who like our real mathematicians or in the STEM fields. We've talked about incorporating language, dialect into the math classroom, what that could look like. Now let's talk about, um, it just escaped, I just had it. It'll come back, it'll come back. I'm so mad about this too, cause this is a good one. All right, you're in Ghana. So yeah, so my family's from Ghana. I'm currently in Freetown, Sierra Leone. So I'm close to Ghana. Have you noticed a difference in math education where you're currently at in Freetown, Sierra Leone versus what you have witnessed and experienced in the States? I haven't, I haven't physically been in Sierra Leonean schools, but what I can say is they're very similar to schools in Ghana. So 
for those who don't know, um, I actually attended middle school in Ghana three years. And I like to tell people that those were the three hardest years of my K-12 experience because it was high stakes, high stakes testing. 60% of your grade came from your exam, your final exam, 60%. All of your homework, all of your classwork and everything else, if you fail that exam, you, you could fail the course for the year. That's how, that's how real it was. So it very much felt like college. I'm, I'm 13, 14, 15 years old doing all these high-stake tests and sweating, you know. That's um, a lot of pressure. It is. But in terms of the quality of math, it was higher. It's higher in Sierra Leone and in a lot of West African countries compared to the States, if we're going to be honest. Where the United States has an advantage is just in the fact that they have more technology, more facilities, more infrastructures, more resources. But in terms of the quality of math, it's higher in, in, in West African countries. Now, if we're going to talk about the pedagogy of it, that is problematic because they do a lot of what we do here. It's very much lecture-based where the teacher comes in, classroom full of 30, 40, 50 students. They're just talking the whole time, writing notes, copying the notes down for most of that time. And then you're, you're doing some classwork. You complete that, you give it to the um, teacher, they grade it, and then they just move on to the next thing. It was a lot of that. It wasn't very innovative, wasn't really creative. Okay, now I remember my last point as I was talking. Okay. Number three is allowing, like, as a teacher, we have to activate the learning styles of our students, right? So the way that we've done math for so long, especially when we talk about standardized testing, we're, what we've been doing is we've been testing their, really their linguistic but also their numerical intelligence, right? But she has some students who may be more artistic, right? You have students who, like you, like, like you and MC, you wrong. What if, what if your assessment was for you to, in 16 bars, tell me how to solve a three-step equation? I'll body the assessment. And I'm give you 16 bars to tell me that. It's not, it's not a mobile choice test. It's not an open-ended constructive response. It's just you writing up your own rap song where you're telling me how you solve a, a multi-step equation. If I had told you that when you were 12, 13, 14 years old, Nah, it's a wrap, because I probably already got the lyrics in my notebooks, because that's how I take notes, by writing rhymes. Come on, man. So we're activating your, your artistic intelligence right there, right? And then you have some people who maybe like, who like to draw. Okay. I want you to create an anchor chart that, that pretty much explains how you understood this skill. I want you to create your own anchor chart. You can color it. You can show steps. 
do what you need to do, and we'll hang it up. So there's a thing called choice board assessment. You might have a three by three box, for instance. Each box has a different task. So when students get this choice board, they get to choose to do any of these three tasks on this board as a final assessment. Some teachers may level it. Top row is like lower level. Middle row is like mid-level. Mid and then the bottom row is like, okay, high level. Like this is the greatest difficulty that you can have for a task. Choose one of each. Boom, boom, boom. Complete those tasks, submit it for a grade. So there's student choice involved. Right. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't really like this task. I'm going to choose this task instead. So that's another way you can incorporate, you can make the math more engaging for students is by providing them with choice. So just to be clear, that's just one example of how a choice board looks. There are a lot of choice boards that look different, right? But tip, But the main thing is, they have a choice of which task they can do to demonstrate what they've learned. It's a choice, choice board. So choose the task that you want to do. Student choice is underrated, man. And here's the thing. A lot of people talk about, well, you got to make sure they're, cognit they're cognitively demanding to where students are thinking. If you, just because you're giving students choice doesn't mean that you're lessening the cognitive demand of the task. That doesn't make the task easier. They still gotta, they still gonna have to put in the work, but it's up to you as a teacher to make sure that you're putting in the appropriate task that will best demonstrate what they're able to do and best demonstrate whether they've shown proficiency with this standard. That's our job. And part of our job is making sure that we're given tasks that allow them to, to demonstrate that. If we're not doing that, we can't blame the teacher for that. We can't blame the students for that, I'm sorry. That's that's on us, because that's part of our prep. That's part of our homework. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, Go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.